you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Church family, it's uh, such a pleasure for me to be back with you after a bit of a break. Um, my wife and I had been traveling. We had been had the pleasure of being with a colleague in bereavement in Cambodia in the early part of the summer, out seeing grandchildren in British Columbia a little bit later, seeing um, Donna's home city where she's uh, really grew up in Calgary, seeing her sister and family there. And now settling into fall routines. Now, she's not with me this morning, if you look around to see where Donna is, because she thought it would be a bit of a mercy not to bring the cold she, she just came down with yesterday and share it with all of you. She thought better to keep it to herself. Um, the grandsons, we have twin boys who will soon be six, live just three blocks away. They kindly brought it home and shared it easily with her. And now she's seeking to recover. I was... As we were watching and seeing the hope that uh, children, the joy that they bring and the dedication, it, it, it made me realize that we're living in uncertain times, aren't we? Inflation is rising. Stock markets are plummeting in some areas of them. Uh, the queen has died. A king, long live the king, has been announced. Uh, the monarch of our nation, we have a constitutional monarchy. You're well aware of that. We see her... Um, image on our notes and coins, and that's all going to change. Things are changing. We have no control over this, do we? Newfoundland has just been battered by this horrific storm, and one is brewing that now has put Florida, you probably read the news as well, on an emergency watch. Japan was just hit. The Philippines is enduring a typhoon, and the war in the Ukraine seems to be escalating. Drought is afflicting California, parts of our own nation, certainly Europe, and floods at the same time. I don't know if you're like me, but you scratch your head at times like this and wonder what is happening. And then lean into the words of God when he says to us, fear not. Fear not. I am with you, do not be afraid. That's the hope of the believer. That's what we're leaning into and celebrating. The assurance of absent from the body, in the case of dear sister Sally, present with the Lord. Uh, uh, Our prayer is not for her. She's comforted. Our prayer is for Pastor Dio, who is bereft, bereaving, grieving deeply. And we realize, all things being equal, should the Lord tarry, all of us will face similar experiences, won't we? My grandma used to say to me, Dave, don't get old. And then she said, this getting old is not for sissies. (laughs) As I'm aging now in my retirement years, I'm proving her words true. And I hear the voice of the Lord. Do not 
be afraid. I am with you. Wow. Father, as we remind ourselves of your presence, that we do not bring you to church in the sense that we come into your house, you are with us always. And when we gather, in a sense, we bring you with us because you are resident, not in stone or mortar, a building made with hands, but you inhabit your people. You inhabit their praise. Would you take your word and remind us of the truth that you have been looking for us long before we ever looked for you? Would you remind us that where, even if we took the wings of the morning and flew to the uttermost part of the earth, even if we made our abode the grave, even there you are. The dark and the light are the same to you. There is nothing that will separate us from your love. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart as we dig into your word today encourage us, renew us, strengthen us, give us hope for the moment and our future, and we ask it for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage of scripture this morning that we're going to consider, I won't read it at the outset, but later as we continue through it, is found in the Gospel of John chapter 9 and the concluding scene, which is verses 35 to 41. And in this passage of scripture, the theme that I want us to understand and that will sort of tease apart and see its components is simply this, that obtaining spiritual sight requires both the loving and intentional intervention of God, but it comes alongside of the agreement of those who are spiritually blind. What I'm saying is, if God wasn't for you, there's nothing you could do to change your condition. But in that God is for you, there is an anticipated response. And we'll see it in this chapter. And we'll lean into that and perhaps recognize afresh that the miracle that every single believer experiences is that God has made the initiative to bring them to himself. If God were not active in leading you to himself, you would never find your way home. In the final scene of the miraculous miracle of this incredible action of Jesus to restore the, the vision of a man who was born blind, we have the extension of the miracle into the spiritual realm as Jesus uses the metaphor to describe not only the condition of human blindness physically, but of spiritual blindness across humanity. It's where we all start. We're all born into that same condition. On the surface, the story is about a miraculous physical healing, but the subtext or the story within the story that Jesus then refers to and brings us to understand is that there's a spiritual miracle at work. And it is God at work in us to accomplish his good purpose for us, which is first to bring us to himself. Think about that. The God you're looking for has been looking for you. Isn't that powerful? 
You're not trying to attract him, pay attention to me. You're, you're not having to do some great thing to bring his attention to you. As a matter of fact, the question that will probably continue to float in the back of your mind, both as you come to Christ and then as you walk in Christ, is why on earth were you interested in me? Why? And the only answer you're here is, because. It's my nature to love you. He's not going to say to you and I, well, you were the smartest of the bunch. I mean, that might be true for Pastor Ronald, but the rest of us are behind the door. You know, I'm teasing. What do I mean? Is there's no way that you can say, I think I'll impress you. If God were not looking for us, we could never find our way home. That's what this passage of Scripture is going to reinforce and teach. And what it does for us is that in the middle of our life right now, we hit pause and we have a moment of awe. Have you had an awe moment in your life? Maybe for some of you it was a baby dedication. <laughs> How wonderful to see and declare this child is a gift. Maybe it was a recent wedding. Or maybe what jumps into my mind was the opportunity that my wife and I and children had to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and just be impressed by its size, its grandeur, its expansiveness, the power of water that made this, and just go, wow. That's what chapter 9 is. It's a wow moment where we're consciously brought into the presence of God to understand how he initiates with us. You see, there are three elements in this story that, that offer us an opportunity to act on what God is giving us, but also to savor the hope it brings if we have already acted on it. So the first element is that our spiritual sight relies on God's loving intervention. We love God because what? He ah, first loved us. In other words, we didn't know how to love God. We didn't know how to find God. We didn't know how to respond to God. And when he loves us, we have an opportunity to love him back. He takes the first step. Have you ever had a moment when it's been a long time between seeing an individual who has really become renowned, perhaps, or dignified in some way? Maybe he's been elected to parliament, this friend you grew up with, or in my case, it was a seminary professor or Bible college professor at that time that I had who went on to do great things and become, in my opinion, the leading New Testament scholar of the world. And it had been a long time since I had seen Don. And I remember seeing him after many years had gone through. A few decades had gone by. And I thought, well, he won't even recognize me. I'm going to have to reintroduce myself. And goes in your mind, what kind of a conversation am I going to have? And remind him of who I was way back in the day. And then thought, well, that's ridiculous. He travels the world. He's writing all of these books. He's an incredibly important person. And I went over to Don. This is D.A. Carson of that note. I've been my New Testament professor at Bible College, and I put out my hand, and before I could utter a word, he said, Dave, so nice to see you. I think my jaw hit the floor. 
But do you understand that the parallel between that and an awe moment is when God comes calling and he whispers your name, Dave, I've been looking for you. What? He knows my name. He knows everything about me. Before a word is even in my mouth, he understands it. Before my whole anxiety ever can form a sentence, he's fully aware of it. Allow yourself in this moment as we walk through the passage to revisit the awe of God coming near. In this passage of Scripture of John chapter 9, the first element is that it begins and ends with God. Now to get there, we need to understand in the whole passage of of John chapter 9, the Bible is using terms both in a physical relationship, blindness, but with a spiritual metaphor. So when the Bible says that we are born blind, it doesn't mean we just don't know something. It means we have no capacity in ourselves to see anything at all. We're living in gloom and darkness devoid of any pathway. That's what spiritual blindness means. No capacity. Hopeless and without help. How do I know that? Well, let me take you to an Old Testament passage of Scripture in Isaiah 29, verse 15, which says, In that day the deaf shall hear. The words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will what? See. Out of their gloom and darkness, it's a gloomy place to have no light coming into your brain. You can't see it. Now, there's a wider context, and I think we need to understand it. So I'm going to take a few moments to read it. It's going to be on two of the overheads here of the same chapter, starting at verse 15. And you who hide <clears throat> and you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel whose deeds are in the dark and you who say who sees us who knows us wow in other words we can do whatever we want we don't report to anybody there's no authority we can do our own thing verse 16 you turn things upside down shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me. I'm a self-made man, right? Have you ever heard that? I did it my way. Rubbish, as my theology professor way back in the day used to say, unadulterated bilge water. Foolish thinking. We're not self-made, we have a maker. Our problem is we don't know how to know him. We can't find our way to him. Listen to the next verse. He did not make me or the thing formed say to him who formed it. He has no understanding. He doesn't know what he's doing. Do you see the, the unmitigated gall in this? To say to the earth maker and our creator, the one who formed us in the, the, our womb, the womb of our parent, you don't know what you're doing. Well, sometimes we might ask a question slightly different. God... What are you doing? It's a very different question than to accuse him of having no understanding. But that's the definition of darkness because it goes on to say in verse 17, 
Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the summary, in that day the deaf will hear the words of a book. What? The promises of God recorded and written down for us and they will make sense to us is the point. We'll hear them and understand them. And then out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see and we have our Oh, moment. Wow. You didn't have to. You weren't compelled to. There was nothing in me attractive in promise or condition. It's all about you. In these few verses, the prophet Isaiah is describing events like those that in front of us in John chapter 9. There are people on the one hand who think that God doesn't see them in their evil plans, but the prophet is saying on a specific day, God is going to do what only he can do. And here in chapter 9, he's doing it. And so do you see it on that day? The deaf who can't hear anything will hear the words of a book, prophecy and fulfillment, so awesome. And the blind who sits in gloom and darkness because their blindness condemns them to that existence will see what the glory, goodness, hope fulfilled by God alone can do. Wow. So when Jesus is using these terms, we we might not understand the weight of them. We might not have unpacked their significance. That's what I'm hoping to do. The day that the prophet Isaiah sees is like the day in John chapter 9. And two things underscore these verses for us to walk away with. The desperation of men who cannot change their destiny. And the loving intervention of God who can and will. And in this moment, I want our hearts to just visit in the presence of God, to be standing, as it were, on the verge, not of a great canyon, but of the great glory of God himself, and just say, wow, you're amazing. Not only does the Old Testament speak this way, but so does the New Testament. I'm not going to use another verse that deals with spiritual blindness and darkness. I want to change the metaphor, bring that idea back, because it's all part of the same teaching that we have in the, in, in the Scripture. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to put it up on the overhead. I'm just going to read it and, and just listen to the power of these words from Paul as he's writing a church just like ours, the church in Ephesus, a, few handfuls of people. We have no idea of its size. But he's teaching them about who God is and, and his greatness and his action. And this is what he writes. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's the metaphor. You were dead. Not literally physically dead, but spiritually dead. Unable. Okay, that you get it. Verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, you were fighting for the wrong team. 
and you were approving those things outside of what God wanted for you. Then he goes on, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all in the same mess. That's what he's saying. Not one of us could say, no, I wasn't born that way. Yes, you were. That's the teaching of the scripture. If you don't like what it's saying, is don't argue with me, argue with the text. This is where the preacher can hide behind the cross and say, well, you might be mad that this is what God says about you, but I'm just telling you what he says. I'm not making it up. He's saying we are all in the same condition. Then he goes on and he says this, and, and, and here's the moment of awe, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And our prayer needs to be as we read these words, Oh, God, I, I don't know I fully understand how lost I really was. I, I, I don't think I fully understand all that you've done for me. I don't really understand all that you mean by seating me with Jesus. Would you help this poor, faltering mind to stand in awe of you? That's the right cry. Help me. These things can elude me. The whole world and all that's going on can overwhelm me. I can lose my grip on the awesome nature of who you are. You see, in this section of God's word, the metaphor is not just about being blind. It's about being dead. Now, we can ask ourselves this question. What can a dead man do? And, of course, the preacher wants you to say nothing. And the wag at the back says, rot. What do I mean? You can become worse, but you can't be better. You cannot, in your own mind, decide that you are going to be someone whom God will take note of. You can't decide this morning that you're going to get up and really impress him. What that means is there's never a morning that God has got up, if of course, we know that's not true. Just go with the illustration. And run to the banister of heaven, leaned over and go, Oh, I'm so glad Dave is still with me. Not once. There's not one of us that can add anything to him. There's not one of us that will take anything away from him. He exists in pure and adulterated light and holiness and purity and power and splendor and glory and this God that you're looking for is looking for you. Isn't that amazing? The metaphor teaches us of our position. All of us were dead. We had no hope and no help. All of us, powerless. But verse 4 says, but God. The next phrase I want you to hear is, being rich in mercy. The next phrase is, because of the great love with which he loved us. And then the concluding action. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. A hallelujah, maybe? A thank you, Jesus. Remarkable. Now, why am I emphasizing this? 
because it's so easy for us to read a narrative like the one that we have in John chapter 9 and think about it as a point of view when we're standing and watching what is happening in someone else's life. But what the passage invites us to do is live it in the first person. To see ourselves like this blind man. Wanting a different life, unable to make it happen. Yearning for someone to do something. And not knowing if anything would ever be done. Do you understand that as Paul is emphasizing for us the agency of God, he's also inviting us into the experience of God's grace. Friends, if it was required of us to seek God, to find our way to him, we would all stumble perpetually in darkness. Maybe bang into each other and have a few fights, but never get towards the place God is. What Jesus does next is is, is so amazing in this passage because he's given this man spiritual sight. I mean, physical sight. He's restored him. And there's a big controversy that, Bruce, you know the chapter. Because the Pharisees are divided. Right away they think, he did the miracle on the Sabbath. Bad man. He should rest. God rests on the Sabbath. Any prophet should rest on the Sabbath. Anybody who does work on the Sabbath can't be from God. That's the rationale. And so what do they do? They want to strip Jesus of any power in this miracle. Now, I want you to know there's a sub-theme all the way through the book of John you've been studying, and that is these leaders are jealous of Jesus because he's doing things none of them can do. He's attracting crowds like none of them have ever seen. Wherever he goes and he does these things, people are all talking about Jesus. No one's talking about them. Now, that's a bit hard if you're a leader, and you see this guy come in, and suddenly he wins all the attention and affection of the people. You can feel a little, uh, what? Jealous, envious, a little ticked, maybe downright angry. They want to get rid of this guy. So they're, what are they doing? They're trying to destroy his character. Sounds like politics, doesn't it? You know, if you don't like your opponent, just, you know, say terrible things about him. Hopefully they're true. You know what I'm saying? You can make it up because one lie is as good as a fact in politics. Don't you think that? Well, at least that seems to me about what happens in politics, but... Here is Jesus, and he heals this man. There's this amazing controversy, and people want to get rid of him. So what do they do? The first thing they do is they call the parents in and say, was he really born blind? Now, getting on the wrong side of this leaders threatens your connection to the community. And so what do the parents do? They duck. Instead of standing up for their son, they go, he's of age, ask him yourself. In other words, we don't want to get involved in your spat. So they call the guy in and they say, were you born blind? He says, yeah, I was born blind. And do you admit that the guy who did this is a sinner? And he said, well, whether or not he's a sinner, I can't tell you, but this is the one thing I do know. I used to be blind and now I can see. Hallelujah, right? Oh, yeah, they're all excited, except they're all mad now is the wrong answer. What do you know? You were born in sin. That's why you were blind. That's what they're saying. 
it was a damnation from God that you were even in this condition. Of course, that's not what God says. And earlier in the chapter, the disciples actually said, was this man born blind because of his sin or someone else's? And Jesus actually sidesteps and says to his followers, it has nothing to do with the cause. It has everything to do with God preparing to show his glory in this man's life. The God you're looking for is looking for you to do good things for you. So they're fed up. And the man says, well, I don't know if he's a sinner, but I do know this. Nobody can do the kind of things he does unless God hears him. And if God is hearing him, that's how he's done the things he's doing. And they go, shut up, what do you know? And they kick him out of the synagogue and cut ties with him. And he is now persona non grata just because God came finding him. There's a little aside I just want you to notice. If you think receiving God and his grace and goodness will mean the rest of the world will stand and applaud, you have another thing coming. Many will be very angry that God has done for you what he hasn't done for them or for someone else, and they'll create all kinds of bad news around your good experience. It's the truth of the scriptures. He sidesteps all of that, but now, what's he going to do? Where's he going to go? He can see, but I imagine he's a bit perplexed. I imagine he was looking for a different outcome. I imagine he's feeling a bit confused and maybe a little isolated and lonely. And in verse 35, we pick up the story when it says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out when he found him. He had a question for him. What's the point? Jesus finds the man. The God you're looking for doesn't just look for you once. The God you're looking for continues a seeking relationship after you. Aren't you glad to hear that? Aren't you glad to know that he doesn't sort of just clean you off a bit, stand you up, dust you off, give you a little pep talk and say, now, you know, fly straight. No, he's going to lead you. He's going to counsel you. He's going to walk with you. He's going to continue to what? Be your Lord and Savior, your guide, your ever-present help in trouble. He won't let you go even when circumstances make you think he's forgotten. Or we form that very questionable line. I know it. I wished I'd never said it. But sometimes we want to say to him like we say to our spouse or to our parent, if you loved me. Wow, that's just called manipulation. If you loved me, you'll do what I want. Now, it can come from a hurting heart that's confused. I understand that. But it changes the position of being God's judge instead of being God's follower, right? It's a slippery slope. The man wonders what's going on, and Jesus finds him, and he asks him a question. And the question he asks when he, when he finds him is, is found in verse 35. Do you believe in the Son of Man? It seems like an odd question, except you need to understand everyone within Jerusalem who's been to a synagogue and is a seeker after God in some form within their culture would know that Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 9, and it's a messianic title. It's God in human form in the vision of Daniel. 
It's Jesus. And so Jesus is there. He's the Messiah. He's leading somewhere. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And, and the guy pauses for a moment. He sees who's in front of him asking him the question, but he's just been through an inquisition. We could pardon him for maybe forgetting the sound of Jesus' voice and forgetting that this is the one who put dirt on his eyes and told him to go and wash and, and, and really gave him eyesight. We could forget all of that, but here Jesus then receives a question back and he says, well, who, who, who is he, sir, that, that I might believe in him? So what does he mean by that question? Well, he knows who the Son of Man messianic title is, but as a blind man, he, he, he doesn't know anything, but he has this question and says, well, do you have something to tell me? And this man is going through a, a whole change, a whole progression in his life. In chapter 9, verse 7, he refers to him as the man called Jesus. But in chapter 9, verse 17, when he's in front of the, the, the leaders, the, the, the Pharisees at this point, he calls him a prophet. But in verse 38, after this exchange between him, because we need to understand when he asks the question, Jesus says, well, you've now seen him in verse 37. And in fact, he is the one speaking with you. Isn't that powerful? The God you're looking for is looking right at you, standing in front of you. I am the Messiah is what he's saying. And so what is his response? Well, it's powerful. Look at, look at what the response is. The man said, Lord, I believe. And then he did what faith, how faith demonstrates itself. Do you know what he does next? He worships Jesus. Worship is the expression of a believing heart. When you come in here and you can't wait to sing songs, you can't wait to have them remind you of who God is and what he's done for you, you can't wait to join others and listen to their voices, maybe because they sing in a way you, never, you, you, you will never be able to, this side of glory. Maybe it's because the sound works so powerfully, it just, doesn't it just melt your heart at times? Doesn't it just remind you of things so easy to forget? Doesn't it just renew you in the truth of your salvation? the hope of your future. Worship is the expression of a believing heart. Oh, now you can mimic worship. You can stand up, sit down, raise your voice, close the book, read the lines, and not be moved at all. This is worship in spirit and in truth. He knows what he's doing. He knows who's in front of him, and he is giving him honor and glory and awe. It's an awe moment. The right response to the awesome, loving intervention of God is to worship Him. There's no one like you. You're amazing. I don't know why you loved me. I'm so grateful you do. Thank you. I want my life to honor you. Help me. I want you to have glory in my life. Lead me. Worship is the expression of faith. And then Jesus 
turns it all around because at that point they're having this private conversation. At that moment, you need to understand this. This is the first time in the New Testament Jesus is worshipped. The disciples aren't doing it yet. They're following, but we don't see worship openly like this man is giving Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, what are you doing? I'm the Messiah. That only belongs to God. He receives it, evidently. That's creating a scandal, I would imagine. So here's the man in this act of honoring Jesus, and there's a group that seems to have gathered around, some of those same leaders that have just kicked this man out. Or maybe some who are wondering if they did the right thing. We don't really know the composition, but they're all there, and they're watching this. And then Jesus raises his eyes, and he speaks to all of them, not just the man. And this is what he says. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see. Let's just put a point there. What on earth does he mean that God's judgment results in spiritual sight? Well, let's unpack that just briefly. It means that God was willing to judge sin in the person of his own son so that he could give you grace instead of the judgment your sin deserves. That's what he's saying. I've come for judgment. In other words, I'm going to die for you. And the just judgment is that I am willing to do this to give up my life for you so that you might be my own child. Belong to me, my brother, my friend, my follower, the one whom I came to redeem. I'm buying you out of your sin into my forever family. He's paying the debt. That's what the just judgment of God is. Requires it. But he says something more. Let's go back to the text and see the next phrase. He says, I have come for judgment. I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. What does that mean? Well, let me unpack that. For judgment, I came into the world that those who do not see may see. We've got that. But for judgment I came into the world, though those who see may become blind. What does he mean? Those who do not want him do not get him. This is at times a, perhaps a confusing doctrine for us, but it means God will not impose grace on you. If you don't want it, you don't get it. If you don't care, he won't impose. It's a remarkable part of God's nature that he is just, and he is the judge and the ruler, but he's incredibly gentle as he deals with you. Think of it that way, because that's part of his nature. And in this regard... The truth of the gospel is a dividing truth. It presents you with an opportunity of being found. But if you want to say, look, I really don't need you for that. Maybe you could sort of look after these kinds of things I'm a bit embarrassed about, but otherwise, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm doing okay. You know, I'm no Hitler. I'm all right. And we justify ourselves against everyone else around us 
Why? Because we've forgotten that we were all blind and all dead and without hope and without help. And he comes to us and says, I'm going to lift you out of your deadness and give you life. I'm going to heal your spiritual inability to see and understand. I'm going to take away your deafness and allow my word to penetrate your thinking. I'm doing all this for you. And if you want it, it's yours. If you don't, it's not. That's the judgment. And the leaders that are standing around, I think at this point they're looking at each other and going, I, I think he's talking about you. To the guy next to him, I, I think he's talking about you. I, I, I think you should be offended by that. Actually, one of them is brave enough at the end of the chapter to say that very thing to him, where the, some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? what? Like they're offended. What? Right? That's what a parent says to his kid. What? To silence him, right? Get in line. That's wrong. That's rude. That's, that, that's bad behaving. What? That's what, Jesus, that's what they're saying to Jesus. And then they actually make it clear. So yeah, there's no two ways of understanding. Are we blind too? Wow, there's a moment here. Do you see the moment? Now they're asking the question because they want Jesus to say, of course not. Here are the leaders of Israel. You couldn't possibly be blind. But we've just gone through the scripture to understand everyone comes out of the same slew covered with the same muck. No difference. Even Pastor Ronald. As much as we like him, he came from the same swamp, right? You understand what I'm saying? No exceptions. I'm picking on Pastor Ronald because he's an easy target. He's sitting right to my left. And he's a brother and he might love me anyway. But the point that I'm making is all of us are sinners. All of us are blind. All of us start out dead without the miracle of grace. So they're saying, what? Are we blind too? And how does Jesus answer the last verse? Well, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of your sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt stands. It remains. The answer is, yes, you're blind too. And I'm here for you. And they hated him all the more. Friends, I want you to know when God says you're a sinner, it isn't to put you in a category that's worse than everyone else. It's to open your eyes to see you're no different. And therefore, his grace is common grace. It can be for you. But if you say, now I'm not like that, then maybe you will turn down the greatest opportunity for change that has ever been offered you. Because it's not about what you do to earn God's favor. It's about what God has earned for you at the cross to bring you home. And when you receive it, you stand before him and say, Wow! Thank you. So today, friends, if you're here seeking, I'm urging you to have an awe moment and receive Christ. I'm saying to you that the sentence of being a sinner does not need to stand. You can 
leave the darkness, come to the light. You can leave the deadness, come to life. You can receive Christ right where you're at. And if you need more explanation, if you want someone to pray with and for you, if you have questions that need answers, please talk to Pastor Ronald, myself, one of the elders, someone you know that is a step down the road beyond you, and we will help you. If you do know this grace, revisit again and say, wow, I don't deserve this. I'm so grateful you're there for me. You've done this for me. Lord, open my eyes and worship him. Years ago, when I was at college, my final closing illustration, I learned a hymn from a history professor that our churches no longer sing was written in the 1800s, but it's powerful, and then it goes like this. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my heart to seek him, seeking me. It was not I who found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. What's it saying? You may feel that spiritual progress is a struggle and it's all on you and you're trying and you're trying and you're trying. Understand it this way. All that effort that you think you're making trying to find your way is God with links of a chain pulling you home. I looked for you and afterward I knew you moved my heart to seek you seeking me. It wasn't I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. Wow. Father God, thank you that in this day in September, with the rain coming down, watering the earth, we can have a deeper, better blessing from you, which is to respond in faith to Jesus. Work within all our hearts, we pray, that we might come steps closer to you and those of us who know you, that we might stand in awe and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.